I enjoy that journey of growing and learning and becoming better at something. Trying to be also satisfied with where your skill level is at the point in time where you are, even if five years later you look back and you say, oh my God, what a shitty job did I do there? (laughs) As long as I was happy at the time, then that's important to me. Hi, this is A Smaller Life, a podcast hosted by me, Saskia de Feiter. I am a small business owner who wants to grow by going smaller and choose better to do better. Join me on my journey where I figure out how I can make my needlecraft business relevant in this era and in my personal life. I'm very excited to share with you the interview I had with Tom of Holland, also known as Tom van Dijnen. He made his mark as a self-taught master of mending over the last decade. A long list of projects leave a trail for the new generation of menders to step onto the stage, as mending now is rapidly becoming part of a conscious lifestyle for many. Even non-needle crafters now take to mending their clothes to make them last longer. Thomas told me that he will be retreating from the public scene of mending and will be focusing on his crafts in a smaller personal setting, living a smaller mending life, as it were. This is Tom's last public interview. He talks about his journey, the new menders on the scene, his love for hand sewing, and his latest projects, including the wonderful collaboration he did with Toast. The interview was recorded live in our online community. Members of the community were invited to ask Tom their questions after the interview, and we had a really nice conversation together. Here's the first part of the interview for all of you to enjoy. So, Tom, great to have you. Thank Um, you for having me. (laughs) From Brighton, live from Brighton. Would you like to start with uh, introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. So, uh, my name is Tom van Dijnen also known as Tom of Holland, and um, I'm originally from uh, Limburg, um, a very small town in the Netherlands, and I now live in Brighton. I've lived here for over 20 years, and that's where I started becoming interested in knitting and sewing and uh, repairing as well in a more serious manner, so to speak. So I've always been creative and interested in textiles. I've always done a lot of little things here and there, but it's really uh, in the last 12 or 15 years that I've developed my interest and and became Tom of Holland and and started a visible mending program. What sparked your interest in when you were in Brighton? How did you really get going? I, I, it started off with um, taking up knitting again. I learned to knit as a kid in primary school and also from a mum who's a very good knitter. But I hated knitting as a child. <laughs> so I managed, I managed to, to knit a teeny tiny little scarf for my teddy bear. <laughs> and it was stripy and had a cable. I don't know why I tried something difficult like that. Maybe that's why I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, after that, I kind of didn't really do a lot of uh, knitting at all. And um, then 
um, as I grew up and I started to buy my own clothes, I started to become really interested in fashion and I started spending a lot of money on it. And then one time I just saw a really beautiful scarf somewhere that was hand knitted in a fancy boutique and it was very, very expensive. And then I thought, well, I am, you know, I'm quite handy with the needle and thread and I did learn how to knit one time ago, long, long time ago. So I'm sure I can can learn myself again so i just bought one of those um how to knit in 10 easy steps books. <laughs> and i bought some yarn and some knitting needles and i made a beautiful scarf that i still wear nowadays um did not resemble in any way shape or form the scarf i had seen in the shop but that was not really the point um it was something that i really i really enjoyed making and then not long after that, uh, a friend of mine was talking about Ravelry, and so I joined Ravelry at the time, um, and that's how I found out about Elizabeth Zimmerman, the opinionated knitter, and that was really uh, an eye-opener for me, and I really liked her way of thinking about the creative process, not being hampered, um, you know, the instructions, and try to find your own way. And then I uh, met my husband in London. He lived there at the time. And I was just looking around for knitting shops near where he lived. And I found this little yarn shop called Prick Your Finger, which was more like, it's almost like a creative space, art, um, all about yarn, all wool. Everything was wool in there, um, ethically made, lots of hand spun. The window every month and different textile artists would show their work there. So I really enjoyed their uh, creative energy, so to speak. And um, they were always very encouraging about uh, anything and everything that, that I made and other people made that would go there. Yeah, and so I, I can't even quite remember how we ended up talking about it, but I ended up doing a darning workshop there. And then not long after, I was really lucky. A friend of mine in Brighton was looking to open a creative hub where she wanted to run workshops of all sorts of different things. So then I started doing some workshops there. And yeah, so it really very slowly grew from there and uh, started repairing some things for other people. And that's how I ended up taking commissions. So yeah, so it's a really uh, it's a long journey and it's been it's grown very organically for me. So I can't really pinpoint exactly that this is where it started because of the seeds were sown when I was very, very young. Yeah. As they usually are with knitters, a lot of the time knitting goes back and then you drop it and then something triggers it. You pick it up again like a long lost friend and then you're off to your next adventure together for the, the next decades. But You've become quite famous in mending and then specifically the visible mending. Mm. I don't remember what I used to say to you. You used to correct me all the time. I mixed up visible and... Visual. Uh, visual. Yeah, I used to say visual mending. <laughs> visible mending. So where you take advantage of the fact that something is is mended and you, you shine a light on it. You don't try to hide it but mm. you do your best to make it look extra beautiful how did you decide I want people to see what I'm doing here what how does it go from 
just being one of the techniques you have in your toolbox for knitting into something that's on a stage. If you want to build or grow your business in textile crafts, why don't you join our online community for the small monthly contribution of only 10 euros, which is basically $10-ish. You get to hang out, learn from, and share your business and your personal craft journey with all the lovely people there. Support the podcast at the same time, and you get everything wrapped into one loving package. I would love to welcome you there. Go to patternshift.fm and click community. And while you're there, sign up for our emails so you'll never miss a thing. Um, so for me, visible mending isn't a tool. It's a it's a way of thinking about repair. Let me try and explain how I ended up doing visible mending because I think it kind of uh, may help answer this question. So I'm quite a perfectionist. I always like to do the very best that I can do at the time that I do something. So, and I always try to improve things. So I enjoy that journey of growing and learning and becoming better at something, trying to be also satisfied with where your skill level is at the point in time where you are, even if five years later you look back and you say, oh my God, what a shitty job did I do there? <laughs> as long as I was happy at the time, then that's important to me. Um, so I did try to do invisible mending because I, at the, when I started, I was kind of more in the, the mindset of, uh, you know, the t- traditional way of thinking about mending is it should be invisible, um, you know, you should not be able to see it well. Turns out invisible mending is very difficult. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and then I was like, well, you know, it's it's turning out to be really difficult to hide things. So, you know, there's always something going on that makes it not quite invisible. So I thought, well, I can then try to turn that upside down. And instead of hiding that's been repaired, I'm going to try and highlight it. And um, I've always liked things showing their natural wear and tear when I buy shoes I love buying shoes that don't have a lot of stitching on them so they're quite smooth but I love then after you know a year or so of wearing them that all the the wrinkles start to appear in the leather and that's when the shoe becomes really beautiful for me Um, I don't really wear jeans anymore but when I did wear jeans I would always buy raw denim so they weren't pre- distressed and I I like the look of the natural wear and tear on denim so that you know that's kind of a I I like seeing that things have been used and and where damage occurs is always an indication of how it's been used yeah so that that's what I enjoy about the mending and the visible mending is to try and turn it upside down make people think about you know this is an item that Clearly, I've loved and I've worn a lot and I deem it worthy of continuing its journey with me um, and, yeah, kind of create a bond with that item. So I think that's the other thing that I like about the visible mending is that when you buy something off the high street, of course, you know, there'll be hundreds, if not thousands of that item around the world. So 
by doing a visible mend, I can put something creative in it. As all of you will know from knitting, you put a lot of thinking in your knitting. Uh, I guess that's what your whole a smaller life is about in any way. But, you know, even if you weren't that conscious about that side of things, you would still spend time thinking about what yarns do I like? What knitting pattern am I going to choose? Um, you know, and then you knit, so you take it with you everywhere, maybe, or, you, you know, maybe you just knit in a favorite spot in the house, whatever. You have your finished objects, and then all of that is within that jumper or whatever you've made. So that kind of makes you want to look after it, and it's becomes something very creative that you've made yourself. So if you are buying and looking to mend shop bought clothes, then that will also allow you to create an additional bond, I guess, with that garment. And then hopefully you will look after it even longer. Hmm. What you're saying is opening up some interesting things to me and questions that I have now, but I just wanted to flip back a second. So basically it derives from an aesthetic reason, first of all, that because you, you love the soul that things get when they are older. So that would be your main reason for starting to mend things, to keep them with you longer and enjoy them longer. Yeah. 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 So uh, for me, it is important to keep clothes for longer and keep them in active wear for longer. You know, I've always looked after my clothes, even when I was a teenager and I got some pocket money uh, from my Saturday job and I, I ended up you know, buying just simple things. I would always buy stuff with the view that I wanted to wear them for as long as I could. I would never just buy something for that summer because that was the fashion. How sensible of you, Tom. Oh, yeah, I've always been very sensible <laughs> in that way. <laughs> you were um, English even before but, you were English. <laughs> not always been so sensible with the uh, the spending of it. Right, <laughs> That's right. That's a different story. <laughs> But that that brings me to what I wanted to ask you is, so what if you have a, a cheap piece of clothing, um, like something you would usually never buy, somebody gives it to you, would you deem that worthy to mend? Let's say you, nobody that really knows you would do that to you, but what if I gave you a... Zara or Hennessy Mauritz item, you see it and you could tell this is not quality, it's not going to last. Would you mend it uh, or would you not even wear it? So, if, if it's something that I like, I would wear it because, um, and you know, yes, I do spend a lot of money or I used to spend a lot of money on clothes. But even then, you know, I would also buy cheap things as well. You know, it's not like I only ever bought designer stuff. Mm. And actually what I really struggle with is that people only want things repaired because they were expensive to buy. Mm. And that doesn't really make any sense because those are usually special items that you look after anyway. And 80% of your wardrobe, this is just a random figure. I don't know. Mm. It's not based on facts, but, you know, say 80% of your wardrobe is just your everyday clothes that weren't like a hundred pounds for a t-shirt, then those are the things that will actually make the difference in make, keeping them last for longer. You wear those every day. So after 
10 months or two years or however long, they might start falling apart or start to get damaged. So those are actually the ones that you should try and keep repairing more if you want to make a difference in impact that fashion has on the world's yeah. <laughs> so sweatshop labor, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, something that's really expensive that you only ever wear, you know, four times a year on a special occasion, that's not really going to make a difference. You know, it's the things that you wear every day that you need to try and prolong the use of if you yeah. want to make a difference. But if you try to give me something that I don't like, that I can see I won't wear, then I would try to gently say no to the item because I really, I hate having things that I know I'm not going to make use of. And lots of people know that about me. So I'm very difficult to buy presents for. <laughs> I've been thinking about just stopping the whole present thing and just getting, going to dinner with people for I to celebrate that. So that. Just do that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I'm a big foodie, so. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I would big... rather have a really nice evening with my friends. Yes. Uh, you know, have a nice meal, have some wine. And uh, yeah, I enjoy that a lot. And, you know, I, you know, the stage of life that I I am in, I don't really need new things. Because you only have, do you only have old things that are mended? <laughs> no, I, I have new things as well. Yeah. Because you also, I, I'm going to ask one question first, and then we're going to flip over to some other things that you also do that I find really interesting. But Tama and Robin, who are both in the community, asked a question and they wanted to know, is there an end to the mending? Will you end up with one big mended hole at the end? Or is it, when do you say, okay, it's enough? Um, I personally haven't reached that point yet with anything. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I guess there might be a point where a fancy new jumper becomes your everyday jumper then it becomes your jumper with repairs and then it becomes your paint job jumper and then it becomes you know a rag to i don't know clean with but I've you even really... meant tea towels i do meant tea towels yes, yes. but that's more because i enjoy it okay. you know uh, I don't, there's no uh we have so many tea towels. <laughs> we have stacks and stacks of them. So you don't need to mend them. It's just another project to enjoy. Yeah, it's just, mm. uh, I enjoy doing it. Yeah. Uh, you know, a few holes in a tea towel, like tiny little holes. It's not like it suddenly stops functioning. Exactly. It's not like a, a nipple might fall out or whatever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> Except when you're Dobby. <laughs> yeah, except when you're Dobby, <laughs> that's <laughs> you have a problem. <laughs> We're talking about mending, but you have now also taken to hand sewing. Yes. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I, it kind of started actually with the mending. Um, so I, I think quite a lot of people think that I mostly repair knitwear, but I really enjoy mending woven fabrics and tea towels is actually a good example I really enjoyed that for a while I was um, represented by a gallery in London and I repaired tea towels for them like they were vintage tea towels where I used mending as a more of a decorative technique um, but I hand stitched them and 
<laughs> because I didn't know much about hand stitching, I really shredded my fingers to bits. And so I started thinking more about um, hand stitching and how can I do that better. So the techniques that I used, I got from a very old um, needlework book. So that's why it showed how to do it by hand, because um, when a book was published, not many people would have had a, a sewing machine. And I just like the look of uh, the little stitches that you do by hand. So uh, one of the owners of that uh, gallery is also the chairman of uh, Geeves and Hawks, which is a very fancy tailors um, in London on a Savile Row. He managed to get me a day, a day in Savile Row in the sewing room. So that was very, very exciting. Um, yeah, so I've started doing more and more hand stitching as a result. And I've uh, hand stitched uh, shirts, uh, quite a lot of them now. Um, well, quite a lot, you know, it's a slow process compared to sewing. And I do also my commission and other things. So I've got like three or four shirts now that I've hand stitched. About to do my first pair of trousers. So yeah, so I'm really enjoying the hand stitching and I've learned a lot, um, not just from that day in uh, at Geeves and Hawks, but I also, um, I learn a lot from books. When I am interested in a topic, I will buy four, five, six, 10, 20 books on the topic. And I literally read every single one of them and compare and contrast. So this book says you should do it this way. That one says you should do it that way. So why would, would they choose one method over the other? And uh, yeah, so that's what I, uh, I really enjoy and I've explored hand stitching a lot. So yeah, and that includes hand stitch buttonholes. I know you liked my buttonholes. Yes, I love the buttonholes. Hand stitch buttonholes give me the same feeling as a stick and a bit of wool. Like it, it's so back to functionality and beauty and what what's already here in front of us that we could use. We actually don't need that much. And um, am I right in saying that for you, it's not necessarily only the end product, it's the whole process and oh, not the process yeah. of making, yeah. but even before yes. that, the research, all of that. It's yeah. the... All of it. <laughs> yes. You kind of yes. emerge no. yourself into a technique and want yeah. to become one with it. Yes. Yes, exactly right. that. So what are you working on at the moment? What kind of projects? Well, I can actually finished? show you something. It includes the hand stitch buttonholes. I think if I ever get a rabbit, I'll call it buttonhole. Oh. <laughs> so Although that sounds kind of weird. <laughs> no, I think it's cute. <laughs> Maybe just buttons. <laughs> buttons. Um, yeah, so last year I was approached by this uh, English uh, women's wear label called Toast. And they've asked me to repair or do something creative with uh, dead stock and items that have been returned by customers or from photo shoots. You know, they might have makeup stains on them or something's wrong with them. So uh, uh, this is one of the shirts I've been working on. I'm kind of exploring the, the, the gray line, uh, the border between repairing and embellishing. So actually this shirt had a pen mark on the collar it was only like one centimeter long. But, you know, repairing a little funny thing or hiding a little stain, I thought doesn't look so nice. So I, I went a bit overboard. <laughs> Let me just, just describe the shirt. It's a white shirt. So it's a white shirt. 
it's like a tunic really so it has buttons halfway down with the overlap and it has one pocket the shirt is white and the repair or the the embellishment is done in a blue fabric with a little white pinstripe and I've replaced the whole buttonhole stand with the blue fabric um, <clears throat> so I cut the white one out and sewed uh, this one in place and then here are the hand stitch buttonholes yay, yay. look at them The Yavol community brings together all levels of needle crafters and sellers in the knitting industry. We are committed to shed clutter, industry and social media overwhelm, and want to intentionally create our own wardrobes and home textiles. We use our collective knowledge, creativity and materials, stash anyone, so that we can feel more inspired by what we already have deepen our practice, live our values, be conscious consumers and sellers, and get more projects on our FO list. We are connecting to celebrate our love of knitting with passionate and committed friends. Become a member and support the podcast at the same time, starting at $10 a month. If you want to do deeper dives and really get to work, we offer memberships and courses for makers and sellers within the overarching community. Why not try it for a while and experience how the community will help you to get more done and make friends in the process? Yeah, and then the, the way I've sewn it in, this technique, it's a, called a hemmed patch. That's actually the, the technique I started using on those tea towels that I struggled with so much. And when I, when I look at this, it makes me think, People that don't knit often think knitting, hand knitting should look like the knitting you buy in a shop. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you are a knitter yourself, you quickly um, agree with yourself that that's not the case for reasons you mentioned earlier, but also because where's the fun in that? Um, you could just as well buy it. So I'm wondering with hand stitching, is it the same thing? Because you said you're a perfectionist. Do you keep some sort of a character in there where you think, well, this is not, do you struggle with that a lot? Like well, this stitch is two millimeters and this is two and a half and this is three. Yes, well, but that's part of the hand making process. And one other thing that I really enjoy is irregularity and patterns. So if you look at a brick wall and, you know, some of the bricks might have a slightly different color or pavement, you know, one tile has been replaced or they, they had to cut something out to put a drain in or whatever. The, the pattern is a bit disrupted or, you know, there's lots of artists who work with repetition, but if you look at it closely, it's not always the same. So that's something I, I also really like. I like patterns and how they can be disrupted so yes I do try to to make the same stitch every time but you know it's not going to stop me from worrying about oh this one is a bit bigger than that one or they're not all in exactly the same angle because it makes it more lively to me and it, yeah it shows the maker's hand so do you have an, uh, a lot of items left to do or where are you in the process toast. for toast? Yeah, I've got um, 12, 10, 11, 
10, 11 or 12 shirts. <laughs> Something like that. So much work. Out of 45. Out of 45. Yes. <laughs> and so do you have to finish them all to then return them or do you like yeah. drip them in? No, I, uh, well, there's two parts to the collaboration. So one part is uh, shirts that are going to be sold online. So they are actually all the same style shirt and different sizes. So they all look the same. And then I have another 15 that are going to be shown uh, in, in one of the shops. And they can all be done differently. So they're more individual. So I imagine you don't have a lot of other things going on at the moment. No. No, I can see. <laughs> um, <It's> consuming. <laughs> yes. In, in terms of materials and tools, can you tell us a little bit about that? Do you have favorite threads like with knitters or do you just use what you find? Do you have your Nana's sewing box and you, you just finish that first? How does that work for you? So um, I've very recently started moving over to only using cotton threads for sewing. So I still have a lot of polyester threads, you know, the ones that you just can find in any uh, shop for sewing supplies. So, you know, I, I still will use them if the color matches right with whatever I want to do, because throwing them away seems even worse. <laughs> so I'm slowly moving over to cotton. And when it comes to fabrics, I tend to go to shops that sell dead stock fabrics. Although even that apparently can be a bit of a myth. Can so, you tell us what dead stock is so for people that don't know? Dead stock fabrics are fabrics left over by the manufacturing process. So, um, you know, a, a company, a fashion brand might order, you know, 1500 shirts in this one style. So they need to buy the fabric for those 1500 shirts. Um, and then the, factory that makes the shirts might buy a little bit extra in case there are faults or something goes wrong so there's always a bit left over of the, so that that's that stock fabric so you know you can sometimes find uh, if you know the right shops you can find fabrics used by really high-end uh, designers so it's quite exciting to use them but apparently lots of fabric manufacturers on purpose make more that they already know they're just going to be uh, selling at a lower price point and to just call it dead stock. So there's no way of telling when you buy something labeled dead stock, whether that's truly dead stock fabric. And yeah. that, that's the one thing I find difficult with being ethical is um, there's also a lot of people take advantage of the interest and um, it's sometimes very, very difficult to work out how genuine something is. Absolutely. So, yeah. Also from the from the point of a business owner that's trying to do the right thing, quote unquote, sometimes you hear yourself speak and you feel like, oh, this just sounds like one big commercial from the 2000s. But on the other hand, I don't think there's another way to do it. And it doesn't come natural to a lot of people yet. So we have to name it. Hopefully within a decade, we don't have to talk about all the consciousness and the, as much anymore. But I th yeah. think in these days, we need to shine a light on it, especially now that uh, COVID is, I don't know, taking another direction or becoming a little bit smaller. 
people are returning to the lives that they were leading before. I don't think a lot of people were really shocked out of their habits. And then the greenwashing that people do, like the, the businesses do, taking advantage of it, is really diluting the actual messages that are there for good. So that's really complicated. And um, that's exactly what I'm trying to do with the Conscious Knitting Club so that we can be uh, have our eyes wide open and learn as much as we can together to to separate those facts and yeah. the fiction. Yeah. And so for you, where do you think when it comes to your personal values, where do you feel they come together most in your uh, in your needlecraft practices and what would you say is the most important to you when it comes to your values in your work? Um, I think it's a respect for the maker. Anybody involved in uh, the things that you use to make your objects. If you buy a cheap t-shirt, one of the reasons it doesn't make sense is because somebody will have been paid very, very little money to actually stitch the thing together. And, um, you know, the big money there is made by other people further up the chain and people even forget about, oh, actually whatever material is made from that material needs to be made first as well. So if it's something natural, it needs to be grown or if it's man-made fiber, there's a factory where people are working with dangerous chemicals to make your items. So, and that always gets forgotten because you never meet those people. They live in different countries. They never get a name. So yeah, so I, I think uh, it's a lot about respect for me in the making and, and the people involved in who make the, the things that you are using. You've mentioned the little grey sheep earlier to me when we were um, getting ready for the call. And, you know, that's like a super interesting company because they do everything themselves. So if you go to the little grey sheep and you visit them at their farm, you know, you can actually point to the sheep and say, I have yarn from that sheep. And that's what I'm making a jumper with. And this is the the shepherd and this is the woman that dies it and you know and you can meet all these people and I, I no, of course it's not always possible to meet everyone involved in the making of the materials but that's a good example of where you can meet the people involved and I think you kind of even if you will never meet somebody that has worked on whatever you're using or if you buy something in a shop there is somebody there who did all that work yeah, um, and you can honor them by by um, looking after them. Yeah, exactly. And careful choosing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I love that. I agree. And about the little gray sheep, you you can really get woven with the makers and everything. If I if you talk about it, I'm like, okay, so the shepherdess, she has this little leather pouch that I that I sell for um, stitch markers and she put it around her whistle, her dog whistle. Emma, the owner, has dyed special colors for Yavol. So there's I have a lot of love for that company because there's all these layers of connection interwoven with stories and 
I remember I begged Emma in my first um, visit to the Edinburgh Yarn Festival if I could please, please, please sell her yarns. And she said, no, um, we, we sell them just it's we're not that big yet. We can't do it. And then the next time I asked her again, and then I think I was the first or the second one, the, the second one, the first one was Loop in London. And then she called me and I don't think I've ever been happier as a yarn shop <laughs> owner. That was a definite high point of my yarn shop career. Talking about uh, yarn shops makes me think of knitting and teaching. And you've also done teaching. You taught the mending techniques. I was wondering if you were a beginner, what would be a good technique to start with? Um, I think the stocking darn I've managed to teach people in 10 minutes. So it's the one with the mushroom. <coughs> in Dutch, it's called stoppen. Stocking yeah. darn, yeah. Yeah, stocking darn is the, uh, I think, the easiest technique when it comes to repairing knitwear. And it's very useful. And it's very useful because you can apply to uh, any garments and you don't need to have uh, particularly good skills. Uh, you don't need to know anything about knitting because that's what lots of people are worried about. Oh, I, I don't know anything about knitting. Um, <laughs> can I repair this? Yes, you can. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to talk like this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and do you have any good resources? If, uh, if people don't have the chance to learn from you, do you know any good books or other tips? Yeah, so my favorite books are still my old vintage books that I have. Actually, on my blog, there is a, a post from 2016 or maybe even older. It's called Mending Books. So it's on the Tom of Holland blog and the post is called Mending Books. And I list some of my favorite books and that list actually hasn't changed. I, I really like learning from books and I, I like my old books But yeah, it really depends on how you like to learn. Uh, some people prefer to be demonstrated to or watch a video that they can play back and, you know, stop and start, stop and start. So, and I know there's lots of videos out there as well now, but I wouldn't mm. know where they are because one, I already know how to repair. <laughs> yeah. And two, when I do want to learn something new, I go back to my books. Do you have any makers menders that you really love you love the work they do um i yeah, wouldn't say well, look up to i feel like it's weird to say that to you because to me you are still the mending master um <laughs> but i'm sure there are people that in in the mending world yeah i was wondering yeah so there, there's a few names that come to mind straight away so um here in England, there's two textile artists, or well, one is the textile artist and the other one has a, a, broad, a wider practice. So um, textile artist I was thinking of is uh, Celia Pym. Um, so she she does a lot of darning and repairing and she's she studied art and she comes from a more art background and she's really interested in the backstory of why people repair and the emotional side of it. And um, yeah, I just, I don't know, there's something really sensitive and amazing about her work. And um, the other person I really like the work is um, Bridget Harvey. 
both of them are first met in person at the Mendes Festival, which mm. uh, happened in 2012. It's a long time ago now. Unfortunately, we never managed to do a second one, but it was kind of like a gathering of like-minded people thinking about mending and sustainability. Um, so it wasn't just about clothes and fashion. There was all sort of different people there all giving talks to each other. That's where I met uh, um, Bridget and Celia as well. And uh, yeah, Bridget, she does really interesting things and she she does a lot of exploring. I'm not sure if she would describe it herself this way, but to me it seems to be a lot about exploring boundaries between functional and a non-functional repair. So she did this whole range of broken plates that she repaired in all sorts of different ways. She used Sugru, so it looked a bit like Kintsugi. Love Sugru! Yeah. <laughs> and she used wire to wire mm. the plate together and she used like a band-aid you know a sticking plaster mm. so the plate is a circle again but of course Definitely. using a band-aid you wouldn't be able to use it because well imagine your food getting stuck in there <laughs> you don't want <laughs> to be, be using that again <laughs> and uh kintsugi is that the japanese art where they use gold uh, yeah, use, yeah it's often gold can be other metals as well okay yeah, uh, repairing ceramics um usually things related to the tea ceremony right yes yeah um this is a thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Uh, yesterday, I went to the exposition of Claudie Jongstra. She's an artist, a Dutch artist. She works a lot with felt, wool and, and natural dyeing. And I was there with another knitting friend. I think we, we talked an hour about the, the arts and crafts it's not it's not necessarily discussion but where does one thing thing start where does it become design or art when is it uh craftsmanship i don't want to open the discussion here but where do you see yourself on that scale i would call myself uh, a maker a maker yeah i and have people called you anything other a textile practitioner Mm, nice. Mm. <laughs> Sounds like you're the house doctor for clothing. <laughs> <laughs> I actually like the description textile practitioner because it uh, kind of stays away from it necessarily being art, although it can look arty. And, you know, if you look at Celia Pym, her mending is also a way of visible mending, but her uh, look at it is very different and it's much more about exploring the meaning behind it whereas for me although I do like something to look nice and pretty or stand out and all that kind of stuff I, I wouldn't call myself necessarily an artist I'm more about the making mm. maker or textile practitioner yes hmm. sounds good sounds good so um another label do you consider yourself a business owner no but you have customers <laughs> yes i do <laughs> tell us about your customers who are they and uh, you said a little bit earlier um people bring you their expensive clothes that have holes is yeah. that it or is there that it's not only um expensive clothes are repaired hand knits and not so expensive clothes but hmm. just things that people um 
is often a, an emotional attachment to them or they just really like them. And occasionally it's very expensive stuff. I've also repaired some other things like um, a rug, which I really enjoyed doing, a tufted rug. So I had to uh, recreate all the tufts. Mm. Um, actually, that's something I wouldn't mind doing again. Uh, what else? Shoes I've repaired. I don't know if you know those two-tone shoes. Uh, like a bit yes, like brogues. The brogues. Two different colours. Yes. Um, but the, the contrast in colour was linen fabric. You know, like summer. Oh, like summer I can shoes. I can see the the summer guy in walking around in um in some hot country with one of those hats and then those shoes and the white yeah. linen suit. Yeah, something yes. like that. So <laughs> the the linen on top of the shoe where the crease happens from the walking mm. uh, that had started to go. So I've re rewoven that or darned it. So um, in neon pink. Or? No, in a very subtle green. <laughs> but it was green, so it was... It was a different color, yeah. Yes. And when people come to you, how do they end up with you? Do they expect somebody that will do invisible mending? No, or? I only take on visible mending commissions. So I make it... When people approach me and if the email doesn't start with oh, Tom, I love your work, blah, blah, blah. Can you do something with this jumper? Then the first thing I will ask them, do you know that I only take visible mending requests where the repair is visible, it's highlighting the history of the garment, it's showing that you think it's worthy of repair, it becomes a talking point, mm. you wear it as a badge of honour. And then, of course, I also send some like pictures so they know what I'm trying to achieve. And some people then go like, oh, no, that's not what I'm after at all. But thank you. Or they say, oh, that actually looks really interesting. And yes, please, let's mm. uh, see well, what we can do. Mm. So I make sure that they know it's, it's going to be visible. Yes. <laughs> because yes. to me, um, when I repair clothes, it's really important that the people are happy to still wear it. So if I were to repair something and it's beautiful and the person receiving it says, oh, it's too beautiful to wear, then I feel I have failed. Well, yeah. Because the whole point is that you keep wearing it for longer. I wouldn't so know. That's, that's one kind of customer. Mm-hmm. Go but on. then yeah. I think uh, people that come to my workshops are also customers. Yeah. But quite different, um, I imagine. Yes. Yes. And when you do the commissions for the visible mending, um, I would imagine there's no way you could ask for an hourly rate. I don't want to know your prices. I was just wondering, do you do project-based? Um, do you like look at it and think, well, we'll make a nice a nice number for you or do you in fact um keep your hours a track of your hours i it, it's it's really difficult to set the price i do think about how long it will take me and if i for some things i know roughly how long it will take me so it's easy to say it's gonna be this much um but if i try out a new technique <clears throat> or there are hitches along the way and there often are with textiles the the fabric might not behave the way that you think or 
you know, people send me pictures, <clears throat> but you can't always see what's going on with the material. Um, so I, that's also why I always say, this is an initial quote. Once I've seen the object in person, I may have to revise it mm. depending on the condition of things that may not have been apparent in the pictures. Um, but even then, there might be a surprise that I hadn't thought of. So, um, for instance, some fabrics um, are really tough to stitch because um, they're like particularly very good quality cottons. Um, they are very tightly woven and although they feel like light fabrics, it's actually quite difficult to keep stitching in them. So it's, it's slower than I would have anticipated. So there's mm. often things that I go like, oh, well, and then it's difficult to uh, adjust your price. So if, if, I, if it doesn't take me three times as long <laughs> than I had originally planned, then I'm, I probably wouldn't uh, say, well, maybe it needs to be a bit more. Mm. I've only done it once or twice where I said halfway through a project, so I'm really sorry, but it's taken me uh, much longer for these reasons. So I'd like to charge you some extra. It sounds like when I bring uh, my car to the garage and they like they start working on it and then they call me like, <clears throat> it's going to be a little longer. <laughs> I, I would love to see your customers, what, what kind of people they are. I, I imagine they'd be very flamboyant so British. I have no idea. Because you don't? They, they send it know. to you by mail. Yeah, it's, all, it's almost always through mail. So I get an email, I ask for pictures because people are always only have to say, I've got this lovely cashmere jumper with three holes in them. Can you fix it? And how long will it take? And how much will it cost? So the first thing I always need to ask is, can you send me some pictures? So I only ever get the pictures of the items. Oh, and, no, and very, I couldn't live with that. Very I'd be... occasionally I, I see a picture when they get it back and they take a picture of for their own Instagram or whatever. Mm. But yeah, I very rarely see uh, the people that, that that commission me. And do you get the backstory of what happened to it? I mean, you probably can tell if it was moths. Or, is it always moths or sometimes no, are there burn blood? Yeah. Oh, blood. <laughs> blood, like knife, like... <laughs> stab wounds stab wounds <laughs> no no stab wounds. no <laughs> sorry <laughs> no it's um i do often get the backstories sometimes some backstories i'm like you tell me this is a very cherished item and now you're telling me you left it in the back of your friend's vintage car who drove around in it for a whole year uh, always the hood down and wrapped their wrenches in the scarf or something like that. <laughs> it's like, doesn't really add up, but I'll repair it. It is okay. a nice scarf. <laughs> <laughs> that would be such body. a nice publication that some some journalist writer goes and finds the the stories and the people behind the things you've mended and the nice pictures. Like just a just a for free idea. <laughs> So that's something that Celia does a lot uh, and but, she's really good at it. She's also a very good storyteller. So when when she does talk about the items, like the art objects that they become, she she is a really good storyteller as well. So it's really nice to hear, to hear her talk about the objects and 
how she discussed with the client how things would be repaired. Yeah, so, I've been yeah. to There's one of her. There's already somebody there who does that really well. <laughs> yeah, good, good. I've been to one of her uh, talks or masterclasses, and it's it was really fun. And she has a very colorful handschrift, handwriting. Handwriting. Yes, I really enjoyed that as well. And it's really fun to see something that for the longest time I thought was just a thing you have in your toolbox, like the way I started the conversation, that is something that people can actually have handwriting in. And one is an artist, the other one calls himself a maker and everything in between. It's a whole world in itself, which is always very interesting to me. So as a last question, we are here talking about this with people from the Conscious Knitting Club and people from the uh, building better businesses circle. And this will also go into the world in a shorter version as uh, a podcast episode. So we have lots of different listeners, some in business, some are crafters. What's your best tip for people that want to start a business in crafting in, in our industry? Well, as I don't consider myself or Tom of Holland as a business, that's a difficult question. I have thought about whether I wanted to turn this into a business, but I also have a full-time office job that I really enjoy. So, you know, if you want to build a business, you need to put the hours in. And I, I don't want to do that. It's really that simple. I don't want to spend all my energy on trying to build a business. So, I yes, I may have a fair few followers on Instagram, but... I've never consciously worked to get that number of followers. So it grown very organically, like working with a really nice women's wear brand here in England has grown organically. Like they approached me. I, I've not pushed my name out there and say, oh, you know, maybe we should think about a collaboration. Um, so then for me, the nice thing, of course, is that... Um, I don't have to take on every single project that comes my way because I'm not worried about having to pay the bills at the end of the month because that's already covered by my office job. I'm in, in a really nice position in that way. So I'm not going to undersell my work. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say, oh, it's only a hobby, so I'm not going to charge the proper prices. I, I don't think it's right for um, the other people that do want to make a business out of it and make it their main income you know, I say you need to respect the maker. That means I also want to be respected. So if I were to just sell a, a hand-knitted jumper for, for £10, because it's only a hobby, then I'm not respecting myself for all the work I've put in. So, yeah, so I, I, I don't really have a tip for people that want to start a business. Um, I do know it's a lot of hard work. And looking at my friends that have managed to make a business in it, you know, they spend every waking hour working on it. And I think you need to be prepared that there's only a very small handful of people who will get rich setting up a business like this. I think you can manage to survive or maybe even live a bit comfortable. But um, yeah, if you think you're going to rake it in, <laughs> then it's... <laughs> unlikely to uh, <laughs> to be that way um, I think that's quite rare 
Yeah. But you know, I I I know people that that do make it work and uh, they enjoy it, and it's always a, a joy to talk to those people as well. But um, yeah, if you want advice on uh, how to start off, you should go to them. I do have an Instagram business account, so I can see all of the numbers, my followers, how many I have every day, every hour. When is the most popular time that people read my posts? Which ones perform well? Which ones don't? Uh, where I, where is my audience? How many men? How many women? I have do you do anything the, with that information? Nothing. No. No, I find it really interesting to to see the numbers, mm. but I because I don't want to run it as a business. I don't do anything with that information. Yeah. Apart from, oh, that's interesting. I have only 11% you know men. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah. No. I, yeah. It's it's a choice. You you can. Yeah. yeah. I do with my newsletter, though. I think about the time that I sent my newsletter, but not social media. Yeah. Um, there must be a reason why it's so hard to build a business in the yarn, needle, wool, craft industry. Personally, I have an idea that it has to do with a lacking level of businessy people that are in it. Lots of people grow from hobbyists into professionals. But do you have any ideas on, on this thing? So Why is it I, so hard? I, I Yes, I think one aspect is the... Um... Uh, the hobby is turning into a business. So it is all very personal. People often use their own name for their business, which is very small. So if you have anything bad to say about their business, then it immediately becomes very personal because they've chosen such a personal name. So you, you can't distance yourself. I think the people that run the business then can't really think purely with the business head. Um, another thing that I think is very important is it's seen as women's work and women's work is undervalued. Even in the textile world, if you look at uh, where there is big money, it's the roles that are traditionally filled by men often. So when it comes to uh, making textiles, knitting is not seen as an art and is worth very little. Weaving, however, which is can be more of a man's job. Weaving textile artists are often men. I'm not saying they're only men, but mm. the ones that are famous are often men, like uh, Peter Collingwood or whatever, you know, there's all sort of names. Um, so suddenly that's worth much more. If you look in fashion, fashion designers are often men and they will earn a lot of money. It, it's a really weird thing. Um, and I think that's you know, it's often underappreciated. Therefore, it's difficult to say, I think this is what it's worth, because if you, the whole society is set up to undervalue because you're simply a woman, then that's going to be difficult to change unless everybody changes. When you go to a business fair, what you often see is the commercial brands have men in suits selling yeah. the yarn to the uh, wool shop owners. Yeah. And... I think it's also a matter of the smaller businesses. A lot of the times female-led are connecting their, their a lot of their values to their job and commercialism and values is a really complicated place to be. 
Uh, it's right smack in the middle where I am at the moment. I'm getting a photo shoot because I want to be more professional and um, come across a certain way. And I know people will have an opinion about that, you know? So it's, there's a, a very complicated balance and scale. I'm setting out to, to discover uh, if it will change anything for my business, if it will bring me anything, if the marketing side is so important and if it could work together with the values and everything. And um, but it's been very interesting. I, I, I could I could go on about this. Maybe you should come back and talk about feminism in crafting another time, Tom. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for coming yes, and talking very to welcome. us. welcome. I loved it for me as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to A Smaller Life. Knowing more and choosing with a conscience makes the world better. If you have any questions about an episode or want to leave a note to me and the other listeners, just click the button in the latest show notes on the website and start talking. If you own a business that fits the narrative, you can become a sponsor of the show. My advertisement rates are pretty darn good right now, so get in touch via info at ja-wol.com. One of the easiest things you can do to support the podcast is to leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to the podcast on the platform of your choice so you'll never miss an episode and share. Share it in your social network or even just mentioning it over coffee with a friend. I'm only one person and I count on you to help me spread the message.